0: Hello, everyone. Welcome to the Central Wired podcast, and thanks for listening in. Make sure to stay connected with us throughout the week at centralwired.com or on Facebook and Instagram. We hope this week's message meets you right where you're at. Enjoy. Hey! Everybody glad you're here. As you can see, we're a church that likes to mix our faith with fun. Um, If you're here for the first time or the first time in a long time, man, you've caught us. We're glad you're here, but you've caught us on the culminating weekend of a series we call Belong. Because Central, here's the deal, this is a place where everyone belongs. Every kind of person, every color person, every cultural person, and wherever you are on your spiritual journey, from unbelieving and cynic and suspicious to sold out living a Christ centered life, you belong here. And we've been looking at belonging, we've been looking at belonging through the lens of generations. We each, each generation has its own favorite kind of music that helps shape the culture. We talk first about the builder generation, the greatest generation that rose this country up with roads and hospitals and schools and highways and railroads. And we are grateful, grateful, grateful to the oldest generation, the builders. Uh, We are in your debt. Anything that we've done, we've just built on the foundation that you've laid. And then the second week, I talked about my generation, the baby boomers, the biggest generation. That's about all we got going for us. Um, Then last week, Ray talked about his generation, Generation X, and all this generation stuff, just a vehicle to carry us into the heart of God's Word, the heart of Jesus, and the fullness of His Spirit. And so Ray talked about Jonah, and his cynicism, and his suspicion, and his resistance to the, the authority of God. Well, today, I know you've been waiting for my friend John. Told me he's been waiting for this millennial weekend. I was at the supper uh, the other night. Yeah, millennials, you can clap. Um, you're usually much more rowdy than that. Uh, and this is a church that loves rowdy, so you're cool. Um, But millennials, that's what social uh, scientists call you guys. I don't really like that tag. Seems too impersonal. But the youngest generation are people born between 1981 and 2001. All my kids are millennials. And uh, I love you guys, and I need your strengths. I love you guys. I mean, everyone belongs here. Builders belong. Baby boomers belong. Gen X belongs. And we love the fact that we have a huge number of young adults that make this church their home. I love you. I am grateful that you love me, and I'm honored to be your pastor. Now, each generation has more than its music. It has its strengths and its weaknesses. That's why we need each other. And as we understand each other more, each generation, we can love each other more, and thus more be the body of Christ united together in faith, hope, and love. Now, I like to call you guys who were born between 1981, 2001, I like to call you relationals because you know how to do relationships like my generation didn't, like the builders didn't, like Gen X doesn't. You guys, you guys initiate relationship. You know how to take a friendship and turn it into family. Like no one else. And for better or worse, we had pictures of what you've brought our culture. Everything from Drake's YOLO lifestyle to binging on Netflix. You were the first generation raised with computers. And it's like you were born with a cell phone in your hand. You can communicate using only emojis. (laughs) And you honored and elevated talented, creative women like Beyonce and Britney and Lady Gaga. And uh, men like Justin Timberlake and Ryan Gosling, and, um, uh, your hearts were broken by the loss of Heath Ledger. And you suffered through September 11th, and you, you gave us, you laughed at, and we laughed with you at the Osbournes and the Kardashians and friends and, and, and the office. But your hallmark Uh, It's bigger than music, bigger than media. Your hallmark is the way you know how to relate with each other and even with an old guy like me, and I am honored to be your pastor, and I thank God for you. When I think of relationals, uh, young adults, I think of two characters in the Bible, um, young men, millennial-like young men. Um, who were just flat out committed to be best friends. One, one was really rich, the other was really poor. Uh, one was royal, literally royal. He was in the royal family, the other guy was just a regular guy. One, one guy was high society, the other guy was lowest of the low. One guy, his name was David, and he was the poor one, the low one, the regular one. He was a shepherd. The other guy, his name was Jonathan. He was the son of the king. He was king to be. He was a prince. All he knew had been influence and wealth and ruling authority. The only thing these two young men had in common, these two millennial-like men, is that they wanted to be best friends. So here's how the Bible pulls the curtain back. On their story, Jonathan and David, the Word of God says that Jonathan became one in spirit. Now, the Hebrew word there actually would be better translated soul, and I don't know if the English translators didn't think we would get it, and, and we have people today who in a very cavalier way talk about being soulmates, and that lasts about six weeks into a relationship. Um, but these guys, they were connected on a soul level, and what that means is they love God first and most, which set them free to love each other with the best of their lives, the best of their hearts, and the best of their thinking. Jonathan became one in soul with David, and he loved him as himself. Now, maybe you're a David. Do you have a Jonathan in your life who loves you more than anything? Is there someone in your life that you love more than your selfies? Um, I don't know if everybody in the room is on Facebook. If you're not, if you ever go on Facebook, the pictures you see of people are not real. People make themselves look more slender on Facebook than they look in reality. If they have any flaws, those are photoshopped out. They use filters to make themselves look better. But a real relationship, a soul relationship, a relationship that begins with God first and most, it is best when it is real and unfiltered. It's not just best. It is strongest when it is real and unfiltered. And that's one of the remarkable things about you young people. You know how to do relationships real and unfiltered. Uh, and it's amazing. Here's the question. How did Jonathan and David, before social media, how could they become friends? I mean, in the old days when I would do weddings, I'd ask the couple, where did you guys meet? And they'd go, in a bar. But today, if you ask a couple where they met, they say, online. Here's where the depth and the soulless of their love for each other came from. Check this out. Jonathan made a covenant. Say covenant. Yeah, say it again. Covenant, three times covenant. It's a big deal word, and we don't use it in our vocabulary hardly ever at all. We don't think about it in our life often, but it is everything to God. In fact, God, he is conversant with covenant nearly 300 times. God breathes out the word covenant in the Bible. It's his preferred way of doing relationship with you. It's his preferred way of you doing relationship with him. It's his preferred way of us doing relationship with each other. Jonathan made a covenant with David. He wanted to be his best friend because he loved him as himself. Now, this is not like a bromance or a man crush like I have going on with Steph Curry. Uh, this is two young men. This is two very young men doing what Jesus said was the second greatest commandment of all the Bible, and that is to love others as we love ourselves. When I point, yeah, there we go. Love others as well as you love yourself. Do you have someone like that in your life? You know the sad thing. Social scientists say that today in our culture, most relationships are superficial and casual. That's not what was going on between David and Jonathan and their God. They were flat out, full bore, fully committed to each other. So this covenant deal, what is a covenant? A covenant is the strongest kind of relational commitment. It was the commitment you were making to God when you were baptized. Not when your mom and dad had you baptized as a little baby. That was their covenant. Your covenant was when you decided on your own faith to join Jesus in his death, burial, and resurrection through baptism. That was your covenant. Marriage is a covenant. And a covenant is an unbreakable promise. Um, our struggle with covenant, we, we are more conversant with contracts. We are like a contract crazy culture. You've got to have contracts to do about anything. When I was a kid and wanted to have fun, I just went out and have fun. Today, kids got to sign Waivers. If you want to rent a car, got to sign a contract. If you want a cell phone, got to sign a contract. Direct TV, got to sign a contract. Want to get married, want to buy a house, got to sign a contract. Let me just show you the distinctions between contracts And covenant because contracts kill relationships and covenants breathe life, everlasting life into relationships. A contract is a written agreement between two or more parties that is enforced by law. I sign the bottom line, you sign the bottom line, I'll hold up my end. If you don't hold up your end, I will sue your rear end. (laughs) A, A covenant is is not a contract. It's a relational promise that God sees as unbreakable, that you would rather die than break your word in a relational promise. So let me just show you the distinctions. If a contract is broken, it can end a relationship. If a covenant is broken, there's forgiveness and starting over. That's what when we see marriage as a contract, and it's broken, then we just want to throw in the towel. Contracts are all about finding loopholes. How do I get out of this? Covenants are all about finding love. When things go wrong in a contract, people look for a way out. If things go wrong in a covenant, people look for a way through. Contracts are based on facts and feelings. Covenants are based on faith and trust. A contract is all about self. What do you want to get? And a covenant is all about sacrificial love. What are you willing to give? Now, before we get back to our story of Jonathan and David, one more insight. The Hebrew word for covenant is kashar, and it means to cut. And when David and Jonathan made this covenant with each other, the cut was deep and the cut was Thorough. Now, you couldn't put those two words and use them to describe many relationships in my generation. Builders, my generation, Gen X, the typical situation is that relationships are superficial and casual. But you guys, born 1981 and on, you guys know how to do relationship deeply and thoroughly. And man, I want to be like you. Um, Here's how God had taught his people to do covenant love. Now, this didn't start with Jonathan and David. In fact, I believe this is the wedding ceremony, the way the wedding went when God brought together Adam and Eve, made them husband and wife. God made a covenant with Adam. He made a covenant with Noah. He made a covenant with Abraham, a covenant with Moses. And now these two men practice the covenant. And here's what they did. They brought together five Creatures. Now, the number five in the Bible is a big deal number. In ancient Hebrew, they did not have numbers like we do. They gave the letters of their alphabet numerical value. And the fifth letter in the Hebrew alphabet is Ha, like Jehovah. Ha. It's God's name, but it means the number five is the number of grace. It's God, number five, God giving you good gifts you don't deserve. Here's a good definition Grace. Grace is God, and I can stop right there. Grace is God. God is only and always grace. That's his attitude towards you. That's his perspective on you. He always extends and revels in the grace that he lavishes on you. Grace is God giving us a good gift that we don't deserve. Like his son Jesus, for God so loved the world that he gave us his one and only son that whosoever would surrender to him would have everlasting life. Um, so they got these five animals, a pigeon and a dove and a goat and a ram and a heifer. And if you ain't country folk, a heifer is a girl cow. It's Five animals. What they did, they laid down the pigeon, they laid down the dove, and then they came to the goat. And with as much violence as they could, they cut thorough and deep until the goat was cut in half. And then, if I'm Jonathan, I pull this half of the goat apart, David pulls that half apart, and then the, the ram, cut in half, pulled apart. And then the, the big old heifer, notice how they're growing in size. The heifer cut all the way in half and pulled apart, leaving in between what was called a bloody path. And maybe you're going... Gross. It's going to get grosser. This is 3,000 years ago. It may feel like a scene out of Game of Thrones, but this is pointing to the love of Christ and the blood of Christ shed on the cross in your behalf. Because here's what gets gross, but real. They walked that bloody path. It was called the death walk because they were dying to themselves. Last night, a young man and a a young boy were baptized, and as they walked down into the baptistry, as the water came up over them, they were dying to their own desires. They had one desire, and that was for Jesus. They were dying to their opinions. They were dying to their preferences. And friends, one thing that I found, no matter how long we're Christians, no matter how long we believe or deeply believe in Jesus, some of the hardest things it is for us to do is to die to our perspective, die to our preference, die to our opinions. But if you're a Christ follower, that's the heart of following Jesus. You die to your stuff, and you embrace his stuff. And so as David and Jonathan Walk this bloody path. It was called the death walk. In fact, this is why these parts of animals pulled apart. It's why over in our chapel, there's an aisle in the chapel. That's where we do weddings. And the center aisle, the whole point is that it's the bloody path. It's the death walk. And in a wedding, the groom walks first. He dies to himself as an example to his bride. It was also called the walk of promise. Because you, And they walked it like this. They walked it in a figure eight as a promise that this commitment was forever. I'll always put myself second. I'll always put you first. I'll always be less. You'll always be more. Less of my opinion, more of yours. Less of my perspective, more of yours. Less of me, more of you. In fact, that's how John the Baptist described his relationship with Jesus. John said this, I am filled with joy at this moment. Where did that joy come from? In that moment, where'd that joy come from? Jesus must become greater and greater, and I must become less and less. David and Jonathan walking the figure eight, the bloody path, the death walk, the, the path of promise. I promise to become less that you might be more. I promise to become less that you might be more. And friends, that's where joy comes from. As Jesus is given a greater place in our life and relationships so joy gets greater in our life and relationships. I was watching on TV this week, you know, lots about soldiers, lots about Memorial Day. There was a soldier they interviewed who was a veteran of the Vietnam War, and um, he came home from Vietnam with post-traumatic stress uh, disorder, Uh, sometimes, you know, deemed incurable. Uh, Yet, He cured himself with God's help. You know how he did it? He said, I just stopped thinking about myself, and I started to put my focus all the time on helping others, encouraging others, serving others. And my life got so filled with joy, there was no room left for the disorder. That's where you find joy. That's how you keep joy. You focus on others. Try not thinking about yourself for five minutes. It'll do you good. Um, Now, this may seem weird to you. This is not how we pledge friendship to each other today, but this is what you got to know. When you open the Bible and read the text, everything means something and everything points to Jesus. In fact, the bloody path, when Christ suffered in your behalf, uh, You know, it started, they just beat his face beyond recognition. They physically, forcibly pulled his beard out by the roots. They they took him by the scruff of the neck and beat his head again and again and again with a club. And, And then they took him to the whipping post. They stripped him of his garments, tied his hands above his head, and then with two cats of nine tails, those are two whips, nine lashes each, each holding a piece of metal glass stone, and then they just went after his, his back until it was just a bloody pope, a bloody pope, and he, the blood was just streaming out of his body, so that when they laid the instrument of death, the cross on him, about 200 pounds, as he walked, bent over, his blood just streamed before him, and he stepped in his own blood, he walked the bloody path, his promise was to us that he would die for our sins in our place as our substitute. Now now that's huge because I'm going to go into the middle of these creatures, not yet the pigeon, not yet the dove, but that goat that was killed with horrific violence. Here's how it started. Jonathan and David would take turns taking that goat's face in their hands and speaking their sins onto the goat. This is not the first time this has happened. This is a pattern among God's people. When they're looking for forgiveness of sin, they speak their sins on the head of the goat. It's a picture that while I was yet a sinner, Christ died for me. It's a picture that Jesus, though sinless, knew no sin, did no sin, was made to be my sin that I might be made right with God. And so they spoke their sins, the sins went on the goat, and then with as much violence as they could, they cut that goat in half. Violent? Why? With as much anger as they could muster. It's an innocent animal. Oh, that's the point. Our sins... Can be transferred to someone who is absolutely innocent in every way, and that someone becomes our substitute in death, dies in our place, and absorbs in their body all the violence of God due us for our sin. Jesus on the cross took all God's anger. So when that young man was baptized last night and that little boy was baptized last night, when they came up out of the water, they came up into this trajectory of superabundant life. God will never, 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 never be mad at them because on the cross, Jesus absorbed all the anger of God, do them for their sin in their behalf as their substitute. He was the innocent. He was the perfect, but he gave his life and bore our sins in our stead. That was the goat. Now let's go back to the pigeon. A pigeon in the Hebrew culture represented abject poverty. Humility. A poverty that was so severe, and you were so humiliated, you just had to cover your face and lift up. You were so humbled by your poverty, you cover your face and lift up your hand for somebody's generosity. And that's a picture of Jesus, who humbly jettisoned from himself all that was heaven, all that was his glory, all that was his majesty, and took on flesh as a little bitty baby, born of a virgin. He humbled himself to the point of death on the cross, even crucifixion. That pigeon, that humility is our awareness of our desperation for God, that we are forever. The pigeon was not cut in half. Goats cut in half. Rams cut in half. Heifers cut in half, but not, not the pigeon. Because we never lose our desperation for God. Now the dove, in the Bible, the dove, a dove is a symbol of Holy Spirit. Remember? Holy Spirit settled it on Jesus like a dove. Remember a creation as God was creating? The, the Holy Spirit hovered like a dove over the deep. So the devil's not cut in half because it represents the eternal Holy Spirit who satisfies and fills and addresses our deep desperation for God and causes within us to flourish the fruits of the Spirit. When those guys were baptized last night, oh my gosh, they were filled to the full with the fullness of God's Spirit. And all of a sudden there was a quickening within them as the fruits of the Spirit Became embryonic and now will begin to grow in their lives. Fruit fruit like love and patience and gentleness and kindness. So the dove is not cut in half. So we talked about the goat. Now we move on to the larger animal, the ram. The ram was a peace offering. If I'm real, I've made myself an enemy of God. And I don't know how to get back in relationship with him. I've done things uh, in my marriage. I've done things raising my children um, that I wish I could undo. I, I need to have peace with them. Jesus was your peace offering on the cross, it was the only acceptable gift that would satisfy the holiness of God in the face of our sin. And when Jesus died on the cross like that, hey, remember the other time when a ram is a big deal in the Bible? The ram and Abraham. It's like a rap, ram and Abraham. No, remember Abraham found the ram tangled in a bush and said, this place is Jehovah-Jireh, God the provider, for he has provided a peace offering to die in the place of my son. And so that's this ram and this covenant commitment between David and Jonathan. Something has to die. Blood has to be shed. And it was pointing to Jesus on the cross. And there's stuff in me that needs to die and stuff in you that needs to die for there to be peace in our relationships and peace between us and God. And then the final sacrifice was that that heifer. And this is a huge, huge deal. Notice that the animals get bigger. And now this is a, a, a cow. And it's meant for cleansing. Not only are you forgiven, by the work sacrifice of the goat. Not only do you have peace because of the sacrifice of the lamb, but now but now you are cleansed of all guilt and shame by the blood sacrificed by this innocent substitute. That's the work of Jesus on the cross. Through that forgiveness, through that peace, through the sacrifice he made for your cleansing, You find unconditional acceptance from God. So when God looks at you, he's like me when I hold my little grandson up in my arms and I just delight. When I hold my little Bella up in my arms, my granddaughter, and just delight. They're not doing anything to impress me. They don't have any degrees. They don't have any money. They want Papa's money. They are loved by me. Surely because they are who they are. That's how God loves you. God, your Father, holds you up in His arms and He just takes great, ferocious delight in you. Not because of anything you've done good or there's nothing you can do bad that will keep Him from holding you up and just delighting Himself, His face radiating on you with blessing. That's how God loves you. And that's the point of all those sacrifices. Because of that love David and Jonathan had found from God, now they could extend it to each other. But they're not done. On that bloody path, they've walked the figure eight. Now they've stopped. And they stop back to back. You know, like, I've got your back. I am your support. I will be your encouragement. I will be your comfort. I will never leave you nor forsake you. I've got your back. And then to exemplify that, they exchanged weapons. David, this is the David that killed Goliath, with the sling. So he either gave Jonathan his sling or maybe a, a rod or maybe a staff, but he gave him his shepherd's weapon. And Jonathan, he pulls out his princely sword. The royal sword, and he hands it to David back to back. It's like, hey, we won't fight with each other. We'll fight against anyone who comes against us or against our God, but we won't fight with each other. In fact, when I would sit down in the old days with young couples, I would tell them, hey, conflict is inevitable, but fighting is an option. And I would tell them the story those guys said they would never fight with each other. We may have different opinions. We may, one may have one strength, the other may have another strength. We both have weaknesses, but we will not fight. That's covenant love in a marriage. That's covenant love with children. That's covenant love between friends. No more fighting. The only weapon we have is the sword of the Spirit, which is the Word of God. And then they exchange. They exchanged belts. They took their belts off. And this was a symbol that they would always hold up each other's pants. No, they didn't wear pants. They wore robes. No, the belt was a symbol of their core strength. The core, the, every, tip, every other part of our body is only as strong as our core. And as the core gets stronger, everything else gets stronger. In fact, Paul called it the belt of truth. Truth. And so they're exchanging bells to say, I will be, wherever you're weak, I will be your strength. When couples get married, that's what the vows are all about. And it's not that my Debbie, I just use her strengths in my weakness No, I become a whole person as I become strong as Debbie, wherever Debbie is strong, and she becomes a whole person, not as she just appropriates my strength for her weakness, but as she becomes strong in the areas where I'm strong. That's how we become whole, whole people, as we become strong as the friends, as the family in our lives are strong. That's what David and Jonathan were saying to each other, and then they pulled off the robes. And Jonathan put on the smelly, tattered shepherd robe. And, and David he walked away from that moment with uh, dressed like a prince. Sheep didn't even recognize him. Walked away with the prince's robe. It was meant three thousand years ago. It was meant to point to Jesus. Last night when the young man and the little boy were baptized, when they went down into the water, their death clothes were washed away and they were clothed with Christ. The Bible calls it, or theologians call it the doctrine of imputation. Everything bad about you is put on Jesus, and everything good about Jesus is put on you. You are made the goodness of Christ, and there's nobody and nothing that can ever change that about you. When you surrender to Jesus, anything wrong with you is all put on Jesus, and everything right with Jesus is put on you. You are made the righteousness of God. You're not perfect, but when you surrender to Jesus, you receive His perfection. That's what's going on here in this exchange. It it, it meant that I will use my strengths. You can have them. I'll help you. And I will humbly offer my weaknesses when I need your help. But more than that, everything in the Bible means something. Everything points to Jesus. It was pointing to our need to be clothed in Christ. Well, sadly, David goes on. Jonathan dies a young man, a soldier in battle, and just as Randy honored those fallen for our country and our country service, so David honored jo- Jonathan by writing this song. He, he wrote, how the mighty have fallen in battle. Jonathan lies slain. I grieve for you, Jonathan, my, not my friend, not my bestie, my brother. You were very dear to me. Your love for me was wonderful, full of wonder. How the mighty have fallen. Young people, I I thank God for you. You come here each week. You bring your friends. You pursue the cause of Christ. You're countercultural in that regard. And I'm honored to have you in my life and to be your pastor Um. When I, when I mention your youth, I want you to think of Jonathan and David. But when you think of Jonathan and David, I want you to think of Jesus, who took your place as your substitute and died to atone for your sins. Scripture says, Jesus, the Lamb of God, who takes away your sin. Jesus, who offers His body as an atonement for your sin. Jesus is the once, once, once on the cross. It's for all, everyone, every color, every culture, every kind, every generation of purpose, once and for all sacrifice God offered on the cross. At the same time, Jesus is the goat set out from God's presence to carry away our sin. He is the conquering warrior. Remember the exchange of weapons? You don't even have to fight. He gives you the Bible as your weapon. He fights your battles for you, and he wins every stinking time. He is triumphant over hell, over death, and the grave, and he'll win battles for you. He is the conquering warrior who cannot die victorious over sin and death. On the cross, Jesus was for a time forsaken by God so that those who love him will never be rejected, fully accepted on every level and in every way. Praise the Lord. So, it's now that your church wants to go back-to-back with you and offer support, encouragement, and strength. Every year on Memorial Day weekend, we offer roses to people who've lost loved ones over the course of the last year. The rose is meant to do two things, to honor your loved one that you've lost and to let you know that your church is with you with support, with strength. We join you in your mourning and grief to offer our strength and comfort. And so, um, would you stand with me, please? I'm going to have, um, as our band plays, I'm going to come off the stage, and if you've lost a loved one since Memorial Day weekend 2018 until now, if over the course of that year you lost someone you loved, I would like to honor you uh, with a rose. So as we sing, as the band plays and leads us, if you come to the front, I have a rose um, for you and honor of the one you love and to show you that I love you and I'm with you in your loss. Thanks so much for joining us. Just a reminder to stay connected with us throughout the week at centralwire.com or on Facebook and Instagram. Thanks again for being with us and have a great week.